haven't had that many ideas. I do. At some level, I feel like um, ideas come and go. Ideas are cheap. Hello, and welcome to Just Questions, where I talk to researchers and students about their research questions and how they ask them. And this episode, we have... John Longineau, and I'm at the University of Utah. I work on biodiversity of ants, kind of a combination of taxonomy and ecology. Mm-hmm. So w- what kind of questions do you ask in that? Some of what I do isn't very question-driven. Mm-hmm. It's descriptive. Mm-hmm. I guess you could make you can make anything a question. You know, what are the ant species of Central America? I mean, sometimes I have very broad questions that don't seem directly answerable, mm-hmm. which are the basic questions of ecology, mm-hmm. of what explains the abundance and distribution. Of, I've been asking, uh, what are the patterns of of local ant abundance mm-hmm. and diversity within a squ- one square meter? Mm-hmm. and diversity of sort of the local community mm-hmm. uh, at the scale of a kilometer or so. For leaf litter ants in mature wet forests uh, in Central America with respect to elevation. Mm-hmm. So, you know, kind of how do ants, you know, of course ants are very abundant and, and obvious in lowland rainforests. When you get to 3,000 meters elevation up in the high mountains, there are no ants in Central America. Uh, at some point, they disappear altogether. So I've been asking questions about how ants drop out, basically. How you know what are the patterns of, of ant communities as they as you go up a hill? Mm-hmm. So I've been asking just a straight, what are the patterns? Questions. I'd like to know, I'd like to have explanations of what causes a pattern. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I've been taking a traditional and what is long known as a frustrating um, approach mm-hmm. because of, you know, it's sort of easy to measure patterns. It's hard, it's hard to come up with explanations just from seeing the pattern. Mm-hmm. Because you know multiple mechanisms can generate similar patterns, yeah. So it can be very hard to tease those apart. And but that's what people in macroecology have been doing, looking at patterns and then sort of throwing as many explanatory variables as possible at it, and looking at various sorts of statistical modeling approaches to say which one is the most likely. It's kind of dissatisfying. <laughs> um, increasingly, I've been. You know, and lately I've been interested in the question of, I mean, one thing that is, you know, you can observe is that a lot of species have very narrow elevational ranges. Yeah. And there are sets of, of montane species that are definitely specialized for being in the mountains. So I've been asking just phylogenetically, where do they come from? And how long ago did they mm-hmm. diverge from lowland ancestors? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, are there lowland things that had highland ancestors more expected and, and presumably more common is that the highland things at some point had a lowland ancestor, that ants started in the lowlands, and, and that getting into the mountains is, is a specialization that goes in that direction. So, um, so let's talk about um, your beginnings of 
doing research so what was the first research question that you ever asked what that you can remember maybe the first one i remember was how does the rate of captive praying mantis feeding change as a function of prey density mm-hmm. um, as a senior thesis project in college mm-hmm. and that was because i loved praying mantises and I was being, I was taking these classes, and I was learning, taking ecology classes, and it appealed to me. And it, I mean, what was popular then? There was lots of discussion of functional versus numerical responses of predators, mm-hmm. which were how predators respond to changes in prey density, with functional response being, you know, the the existing predator predators changing their behavior or just being able to change the rate at which they take prey as prey density changes versus an actual population response of the number of predators. Mm -hmm. So, and and somebody had studied, um, but there were these papers on functional response to praying mantises where somebody had modeled praying mantis feeding behavior. Mm -hmm. So I decided to do that with with little praying mantises. Mm-hmm. Give them different densities of Drosophila and see how fast they could eat them. Mm-hmm. So um, that was during your second year, you said. My senior year senior of college. Year. Okay. So what, what what about ants that made you? And then uh, I and then I got interested. I mean, largely by because of people I wanted to work with. Mm-hmm. I saw a talk by a professor at University of Texas who was studying this one group of butterflies in the tropics. I knew I wanted to work in the tropics. Mm-hmm. And it just seemed like fascinating work of kind of the community ecology of Heliconius butterflies and Passiflora plants that the caterpillars ate. Mm-hmm. Um, and one of the features of this association one of the stories involved in developing the system was that passiflora vines often were covered with extra floral nectaries. Mm-hmm. And the proposal was that these things, you know, they had these chemical defenses that defended them against most herbivores. Mm-hmm. But then these heliconius butterflies had evolved ways around the chemical defenses mm-hmm. that they had then selected for extra floral nectaries to attract ants to be bodyguards to be a kind of defense that yeah. things that were chemically immune you know could not really protect themselves from mm-hmm. and people had done studies with extra floral nectaries on you know ex- you know doing experiments with ants versus no ants to see if they really did provide some protection to the plants or not and in most cases they showed no effect Mm-hmm. that the extraflorinacteries didn't seem to be protecting the plants that much. And I decided to look at this with one species of plant and one uh, 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 one species of Heliconius butterfly that was a specialist on it. Had big extraflorinacteries that made lots of nectar. Always attracted lots of ants. Mm-hmm. Um, but I decided to ask, you know, whether ant species differed in their protective ability mm-hmm. and whether that would explain some of the lack of results. 
And uh, so I started doing studies where I, I was trying to find the effects of you know, whether caterpillar mortality varied depending on what species of ant mm-hmm. was on the, the plant. And also the sort of the uh, sort of viscosity of the ant community. So, you know, would a particular plant in a particular place be likely to have, you know, for how long would it have a particular species of ant? Yeah. It would keep coming to the shoots. Mm-hmm. So at the study site in Costa Rica, I started surveying, you know, collecting individual ants off of vines for a big population of marked plants. Mm-hmm. And trying to identify the ants and Coral, trying to correlate that with caterpillar mortality. And there were clearly species differences in the ants, and I started looking at the ants under a scope. And, um, and while I was doing this, there was a postdoc in my department mm-hmm. who was Phil Ward. And somebody introduced me to him and said, here, he can help you learn how to identify ants. And so I started... He taught me how to, you know, point mount ants. Gave me the lesson how to point mount them. Mm-hmm. And I started doing that and looking at them and sorting species. And I just found that really rewarding and satisfying. Mm-hmm. Um, just trying to figure out what the ants were. Yeah. And it was it was like an intellectual challenge to mm-hmm. understand what species were. And I love kind of learning about taxonomic literature and the idea of, of species and. And, and, but also the traditions of naming things, mm-hmm. of taxonomic nomenclature, and that I could really contribute. There seemed to be a lot of them that was hard to put names on. You know, they, they were either un, you know, undescribed species or the species were so poor, you know, there were names for them, but nothing else. Mm-hmm. You know, nothing else had been filled in about variability or keys or geographic information or natural history information about what they do and so I just started filling that in mm-hmm. really enjoyed it so, so uh, f- from the first question that you've asked to now uh, you must have had the, the kind of questions that you must have asked might have been changing with time but what do you think uh, makes a good research question according to you I, I'm not convinced there's a particular kind of question that's a good question to ask mm-hmm What's better is, I think some people are well suited to figure out you know, something that is really, you know, that's really novel mm-hmm. and interesting to them that nobody else has thought about, and to sort of lead a field or lead a group of people to do something similar or make a big enough splash with some question that nobody else has thought about. Yeah. To attract an audience, um, but for ordinary people, um, what works, I think, is to is, is in a way to find out what other people are doing mm-hmm. and what con- you know what is a popular question that has an audience where there's a community, like there's a group of people with an interest in this question, and often it revol- quite often it may revolve around some new technology. Where you can use this new technology to, to you know, to sort of develop a certain sphere of knowledge mm-hmm. around that, and there'll be this group of people who are doing it, 
and you can sort of become part of this. You know, and it's a little, you know, it can be this sort of combination of, of both some competition mm-hmm. where multiple people are trying to make a name for themselves standing out in this new area of exploration. Yeah. Um, but at the same time, you need a little group that's, that are all trying to be noticed to have a group, you yeah. know, to have a common interest mm-hmm. where there's people you can talk to about it. Um, and, you know, people have meetings and they, you know, there are papers to read and, and you see this area of interest. And these areas of, of interest seem to appear and evolve and have a period of activity and then sort of fade away. Mm-hmm. So some of the things everybody was working on when I was in grad school, nobody's working on anymore. But there was, at the time, there would be a set of people interested in this. Yeah. Um, so to me, the important thing is to find one of those clusters, one of those communities mm-hmm. working on some area. Yeah. So while asking questions and, and figuring out or learning about what others have been doing, you must have had a lot of ideas. So what's what's your favorite idea of all the ideas that you've had? What do you like the most? Oh, let's see. I haven't had that many ideas. I do. At some level, I feel like um, ideas come and go. Ideas are cheap. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, the, I guess of the things I have done, the ones I feel you know, kind of most satisfied about are the, you know, and they are kind of descriptive. They are the natural history kind of discoveries. Mm-hmm. Things that just weren't known before. And that it includes both new species, you know, you know finding new species of things and, and putting them in this context. Um, and so they, you know, and I think they're of necessity kind of small. You know, they're small disco- you know, the small discoveries are, they don't, they're not as good at getting you a job, mm. but they have durability. I mean, they're really new. Yeah. You know, we're just, people had not noticed this before. Mm. Um, so finding new species of things was, you know, felt solid to me. <laughs> but the thing I liked the most was finding this nesting behavior in these little bank nesting ants that, that what you know where I found this this little uh, you know this situation where there were these this group of ants in Central America that nobody knew much about mm-hmm. and I found that you could find the nests on these clay banks near stream edges and I looked and there were these really kind of elaborate nest entrance architectures mm-hmm. You know, with little little flared trumpets and stuff, and I found that that they they keep a little clay pellet near the nest entrance. Mm-hmm. And when you hold an army ant up, I'll grab the pellet and plug the entrance hole with it. Okay. Um, you know, it was just a cool, unprecedented, you know, unknown, really you know, fun behavior. So it's kind of like a door for yeah, them. Yeah, they made like. They they kept a little door, you know. They plugged the door. They closed. They were able, basically they were able to close the door when an enemy was outside. So do they when they come back foraging after foraging? Do they go back in and close it, or do they does one of the it's, ants it's stay usually, back? It's always open. That little the little pellet is just 
off to the side of the entrance, kind of stuck on this. Okay. On this little disc that's mm -hmm. around the nest entrance. But how do they know that they need to close it? Well, all I know is that when I, if I held an army end up with my forceps, mm -hmm. they would run out and grab a pellet and close it. Mm -hmm. So it might be the smell um, of the army ants, but I don't know. They come out. They come out of the entrance and then they pick up this pellet and close it. Is yeah, that they what? come out, grab it, and go. Bloop. Oh, that's that sounds very nice. <laughs> okay. And so that was just serendipitous, basically being observant and mm -hmm. spending time in the field, just watching things and seeing some behavior that nobody had ever seen before. What species is this? Well, I, I named one of them as a new species. One of them had a name, Stenema expolitum. Mm -hmm. I named the other one Stenema alas mm -hmm. after a project I was running. And uh, so that's that's the contribution that I feel is kind of most solid and most interesting, most long term. Great. <laughs> I I didn't know about this nest entrance. Yeah. This that sounds really interesting. Yeah. Um, so the final question. Uh, so if there are a lot of people that might be starting off their research, asking research questions now. So what, do you have any advice for students that might be just starting off their research? You have to settle on a, an area or you know, a question, and it takes time and effort to become an expert in that area. <laughs> and so at some I mean, there is a period when you do need to sort of be, you know, trying to figure out what it is you, you really want to do, you know, what gets you excited. But at some point, you have to really focus on something and decide, okay, I'm going to do this. Yeah. Um, and even, and, you know, and not lose the focus. You know, when it gets boring, don't give up. You know, you, you have to sort of, it takes, you have to stick with it at some point. You have, it's like, you have to commit at some point. Mm -hmm. Like, this is what I'm going to do. And you, and you stay energetic about it, and you, and if you start making it clear that this is, uh, you know, what you are really going to spend all your, your time working on. Yeah. Um, so that other people see that you're serious about this. Mm -hmm. You know, you're you're in the lab, you're reading the papers, you're initiating your own, you know, you're you're making your own way. Yeah. Um, rather than kind of follow, just following other suggestions, or you know, kind of uh, making this a, uh, you know, a, 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 you know, something you're not sure about, or only spending part of your time. Or, mm. um, now you have to kind of demonstrate a dedication, I think, yeah. to get people to notice, take, yeah. take you seriously. Mm. And you have to stay known. I mean, you have to start attending meetings mm. and doing projects and giving talks um, and communicating with people. Yeah. Um, you know, developing a correspondence so that people start remembering who you are. <laughs> Thanks very much, Jack. Sure. Follow Just Questions on iTunes and SoundCloud. And follow your host on Twitter at Ravindra underscore PN.